Hey, Osha here. Thank you so much for downloading the show. I uh, really appreciate it. This is episode 355 of the podcast. Natalie Eggleton's on the show today. You probably listen to more than one podcast, and as you'll figure it out, podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So I'd like to say, firstly, you uh, might be about to hear a commercial. Now, this commercial is to help me pay Andy and Rachel, the two fabulous people who will help me make this show every single week. So if you hear an ad, thank you. If you don't, Ripper. Either way, let's go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why is it important to protect these communities and to protect what they are and, and keep them where they are? It's connection to place. It's heritage, identity. I mean, for our Aboriginal people, that's their country. It's really about who you are. And, I mean, there are people who move away after fires or major disasters and there's a bit of research around about what happens to them. And, and one of the things is they feel really dislocated and they lose their sense of identity and it takes them a long time to try and you know, find themselves again because that sense of cohesion is so important and people who know who you are or you at least feel like you know the story when you're in a place is so important. And it's so important for your wellbeing, for your mental health, for your prospects, you know, being able to access information, knowing where to go to get stuff. We sort of take that for granted, but that's about place. That's about connection. That is Natalie Eggleton. And this is episode 355 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello, ah, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and thank you so much for joining me on the show today. This is a podcast uh, that hopes to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something that you hear on the show today will help you at the end of tonight. You'll be like, you know what? Today was, yeah, yeah that's pretty good. Yeah, I'd say it was better than yesterday. Yeah. Each and every show uh, will do that for you. Absolutely. I'm uh, Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host and an author and a bike rider and a live streamer from Sydney, Australia. Today on the show is Natalie Eggleton. She is the CEO of the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal, also known as the FRRR. 
but we'll talk about <laughs> There's the big charity that I was talking a lot about over the summertime during all the horrible, horrible bushfires here in Australia. More about Natalie and the FRRR in just a moment. A big thank you to everybody who did join in for the premiere party on Twitch for Dad Pod Season 2. Dad Pod is out right now. That's the other podcast I do with Charlie Clawson. It's a parenting podcast. Now, you don't have to be a parent to listen to it, but uh, as you know, I'm a dad of two kids. Uh, one's 16 and a half. The other one's 13 months old. And Charlie's daughter, Iona, is 12 months old. She just turned one. So the two of us talk a lot about fatherhood, a lot about parenting, a lot about dating, because there was a, a big gap in the, when we knew we were both becoming dads. We couldn't really find anything for men, for fathers. And so we made this podcast and season two's out now. We've got some fantastic guests and we had a big launch party on Twitch the other day. Hundreds of people showed up. It was great. It was a lot of fun. And so thank you everybody that joined in. And um, you may be really interested to listen to the podcast. If you're a dad to be, um, a mum dad, uh, you're interested in my experience of being a dad, uh, Charlie's experience of being a dad, we talk a lot about it on that show and we get right stuck in there. It's great. Uh, search for Dad Pod wherever you found this podcast. Uh, if you are new, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. You can always find me. It's super easy. Send Osher email at gmail.com is my email address. I'm not hard to find. Thanks, Connor, who sent a really lovely message. Uh, Connor watched The Bachelor finale the other night. He was full of emotion. It was lovely. For the last seemingly million weeks in Victoria, things have been incredibly tough, but the brightest spot in it all has been sharing each Wednesday and Thursday evening with my friends in a group chat making an absolute meme out of The Bachelor. For us, it's a real highlight of the week, and it's been really beautiful having something that, even in the darkest moments of lockdown, has been able to bring us together in a joyful and celebratory manner, and I'm holding you personally responsible. Connor, I appreciate it. There's about 180 people who are responsible, but thank you so much. Connor, I love that you have that experience of watching the show with your friends and you're able to enjoy it together. That really, really, really makes my day, because that truly is why I like to make the television that I'm a part of. I like to make TV that people can watch together. That's what I love to do. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. We watch it together too. We watch it every week on a Zoom call. Audrey, me, Danny, Jackie, Ursula, we watch The Bachelor together on a Zoom call. And it's super fun. I love it. I love doing it. Uh, so thanks heaps for that, man. And Adam also sent a great email. I uh, had the pleasure of riding with you on Zwift a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when you were in Melbourne on lockdown, I uh, love listening to the podcast while spinning the legs on Zwift. And I've sent a fantastic picture. I love seeing what you're looking at when you're uh, listening to the show. So do take a picture of what you're looking at right now and email me, will you? He's got a picture of, uh, Adam's got a picture here of his, his bike setup and his Zwift setup. I've been enjoying the episode with Taria Pitt. Left my phone outside the bedroom last night. Made sure to spend my morning with my beautiful partner before touching my phone. Good move, sir. Uh, shout out to Tiff. Uh, happy anniversary, Tiff. You and Adam have been together one year. Good on yous. Good on yous. What am I? I'm so from Queensland. I'm the worst. Thanks heaps, Adam. And I look forward to going for a ride with you, man. Let's uh, figure it out. Jump on the Discord. There's a Discord server now, which is fun. But it'd be great. We should do some meetup rides. That'd be rad. I'd really enjoy that. You probably have been hearing me talk a little bit about the live streaming over the last few weeks. I'm really enjoying it. Really enjoying it. Like for Charlie and I to sit down and have a bit of a yarn and do a Q&A for Dad Pod. And we had like a couple of hundred people joining in with us. And like this morning, I rode my bike and there's 500 people with me riding my bicycle. I'm really enjoying it. I'm really, really enjoying it. You can start an account for free on Twitch, twith.tv slash Ginsburg. Start an account for free and just come and, you know, follow me and then it'll tell you when I'm on. And, you know, if you're in the Facebook group, there's a Facebook group for this show, but you know, 
I haven't been there for about a year and a half, two years, because I'm just not down on Facebook. I'm just, I'm just not into the Facebook situation. All right. I know a lot of people like to gather there, but I've just, I can't do it. But I'm, we've got a Discord now, uh, which is really in, enjoyable. I'm really enjoying being a part of the Discord and there's a bunch of people there that are engaging and we're having good chats there. It's really quite good. But also, if you just want to chat to me, I'm there all the time on Twitch. I ride my bicycles most mo- I ride my bicycle most mornings and um, I do a quiz show on Tuesday nights uh, at 8 o'clock and I also do this uh, Q&A or I do the check-in episode for this show, usually around 4 o'clock on a Thursday. And I said, I'd love to see you there. Come and be a part of it. It's really nice. It's just us chatting. It's just hanging out, you and me hanging out. It's really cool. I really like it. Find me on twitch.tv slash Ginsburg. That's where we are. And um, come for a ride. If you want to come for a ride with me, message me in Discord. We'll try and work out a group ride, try and figure it out. Bit of an update about the possum situation here at our house. If uh, you're new, you may not know, but we had a family of, I believe, five ring-tailed possums living in our roof. Now, I'm all for a ring-tailed possum. I love a protected marsupial as much as the next person. However, when they run around on our ceiling. The dogs freak the fuck out. And then the dog barks, and then the baby cries. And so, therefore, it's a problem. So, we had to get the possum man, and the possum man came and put this fabulous little door flap in, and he sealed up all the roof, and he put this flap in the door, and I spent a couple of days getting out on the roof and putting fruit there to help the little baby possums get out, and we had one baby possum that was kind of stuck, and we could hear it crying for its mum. It was horrible. We've had a couple of nights of silence, though. So we're pretty sure the, the possum got out. The possum man came and took his door away. And we did put it, like, we're not heartless bastards. We put a possum box in the back tree. We've got a tree at the back of our place that we, we put a box in. It's about, I don't know, it's like two shoe boxes with a circular hole stuck in the middle of it. So it's a little place where the possums can go and live because they're territorial and they're creatures of habit and they need a place to live. And so that we do know they use that tree because we look at the poo underneath the trees. And this morning when I was doing the backyard run to go and pick up all the dog poo, as you do, I saw a whole bunch of ringtail possum poop kind of underneath the access point to the possum box. So I've yet to get a camera up there. I, I, I did get on eBay and found a like a $20 infrared night vision camera. So I'll get on a ladder and I'll, I'll pop it up there and we'll see if we can't get some hot possum cam action. Because there was a lot of them. A lot of ringtails, but it might be a brush tail that's jumped in there. I don't know, but the poo didn't look so big. I know about the difference of possum poo because our friend Cleo wrote a book, Whose Poo Are You? And I know the ringtail possum poo is smaller. So um, that's the latest update. The possums are out of our roof, and we're pretty sure, judging by the poo that's at the bottom of it, we're pretty sure they've gone to live in the possum box that we put in the back. So at this point, mission 100% accomplished. All right, I, I, I think... We might have done it. We might have rehoused, relocated these possums so they can still live in our area and still do the things they do and be a part of their... I mean, they were here first, and yet we can still sleep. Well, at least the baby can sleep because the dog's not losing his fucking mind because there's a possum dance party going on above us. <laughs> okay. Right. So, moving on. Before we get to Natalie, if chats about the future of our country interest you chats about the economic future and safety of our country interest you you may be interested in the episode of this show with dr richard dennis you can find it at episode 336 scroll back in your podcast feed dr richard dennis is the uh, chief economist at the australia institute he's a fascinating human being 
and it might just uh, float your boat if you have a listen. We in Australia, one of the richest countries in the world at the richest point in history, we've just spent $200 billion buying submarines just in case. Right? There's no certainty there's going to be a war. There's no certainty if we had a war, some submarines would help. But that's the kind of people we are, just in case we're spending $200 billion on subs. Just like most Australians insure their house against the one in 10,000 chance that their house will burn down. You can live for 10,000 years and on average your house would burn down once. But most of us happily spend a grand or two insuring our house. Why? Because we're terrified of catastrophic risk. So when it comes to climate change, we just need to be as cautious about climate change as we are about house fires and wars and just start doing it. It's not beyond our wit. It's just a choice we're yet to make. So let me tell you about my guest today. Natalie Eggleton is the CEO of the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal. It's a hard one to say fast, so she told me it's fine to say the FRRR. The FRRR is a not-for-profit organisation that harnesses the power of collective investment between government, business and philanthropy to improve lives of people who are living in rural, regional and remote Australia. Now, alongside their donor partners, they have distributed more than 75 million bucks in grants to small rural communities. When it comes to philanthropy, when it comes to charity, I know 2020 is a tough year to be giving any money away. I know you have a choice as to if and if and where you do donate your hard-earned money. Yet from what I've seen firsthand on the ground and having done some work with people that received a grant from the FRRR, I can absolutely positively tell you the FRRR do incredible work, incredible boots on the ground deployment of really impactful programs to support people who live in rural and regional Australia. Natalie is, of course, an absolute boss and the work that the FRRR does is just so incredibly important for all of us, even if we live in a metropolitan area and have lived in a metropolitan area our whole lives. It's super important for our entire country because you like food, I like food, guess where our food comes from? Just to start, all right? Now, a quick note, we did record this, um, goodness, it's actually months, a few months ago now. I did get a, a quite a bit ahead during the first lockdown. I, I was smashing out a podcast today. So we did record this quite a few weeks ago. So as you're no doubt aware, the news on COVID-19 changes day to day, changes hour to hour. So some of the ways that we were talking about things may seem a little out of place, a little, oh, hang on, you know, that's not exactly what we know now, but you're smart. You'll be able to figure out what we are talking about, okay, because obviously things have had changed a little bit. I don't know if Victoria had gone into the second lockdown at that point, but you'll be able to figure out where we're coming from. We speak pretty broadly about the situation, and so you'll, you'll understand what we're going on. It goes without saying that if you want to support the FRRR, then I'm sure they'd appreciate your help. FRRR.org.au, F-R-R-R.org.au. So without further delay, here is Natalie Eggleton. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon, Natalie. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Good. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You're, uh, you're in Bendigo? I'm in a little town called Maldon, which is southwest of Bendigo, between Castlemaine and Bendigo. So I, I, I grew up in Queensland where the towns, I guess by the time they got up there, things were 
it, we weren't really on horses that much. So things were kind of a lot further away from each other. I guess people were more in motor vehicles and trains by then. But mm. the outskirts of Melbourne and stuff, it just blows my mind every time I'm down there that you can literally drive an hour out of the CBD and be in the country. And there's a yeah. really distinct, this is where Melbourne ends and this is where the country starts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there's a lot of towns very close to each other. You yeah. only have to go 20 minutes and you're in another town. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I adore, I adore it. And I was very happy to notice that when I was in Castlemaine that I had my um, – the beverage of my youth. I had to thank that town for the beverage of my youth, the Castlemaine uh, Perkins that created the 4X Brewery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. They've, they're, they're probably – you know, they were able to pay a lot of cricketers uh, yeah. sponsorship money off the cash that I spent. <laughs> You've done your bit. So, how are you? Um, first up, like obviously, this is an extraordinary time in in human history, and and here we are, where we're starting to realise that mm, there is no vaccine, and we're just going to have to figure out how to work around this. So, how are how how are you? How how are things with you and your your nearest and dearest? Um, I think really similar to a lot of people. I've got two kids who are primary school age, mm-hmm. a husband who luckily has a job that's pretty flexible, but the word of the moment in my world is discombobulating. Mm. <laughs> so everything just is a bit mashed up yeah. and, you know, the hours and the days roll into each other. So, you know, we're really fortunate though. We live in a place that's beautiful. We've got countryside right around us. We're in a lovely part of the world. We're healthy, got jobs. So we're in a good place and we're just trying to take the good parts out of it and try to deal with the, the weird parts <laughs> as best we can and have fun. It is. And certainly in in a place of work like you are, it seems that suddenly adjusting to new circumstances and keeping things around you that have some sort of through line is a very important part of all of that at the foundation for, I always get so tongue-tied trying to say it. Even when I try and say it's the initialism, F-R-R-R is still hard to say. Yeah, go, go with F-Triple-R. F-Triple-R. Oh, yeah. I've been saying not, it wrong. Not this. the radio station, not the pirates. I've been trying to say it, saying it wrong the whole time. During the summertime, every time I was plugging on the podcast, oh. I was like, the foundation of rural original renewal. Yeah. But it seems to me that what you, at its core, the FRRR would be, okay, so here's what makes you you and here's what makes your family your family and here's how you can identify with who you are and your sense of purpose. This set of circumstances that got you to this point probably don't apply anymore, but here's how we'll keep those core things together while we move to a new set of circumstances. Is that simplifying it too much? No, I mean, not really. It's yeah. all kind of, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, at FRRR, we're really fortunate. We can do everything offline, also online, virtually. Uh, what we can't do is face-to-face contact in rural yeah. communities, and that's obviously pretty tough. But at the same time, we all live in rural communities, so we're living and breathing the impacts of all of this, including drought, bushfires, COVID. Um, it's all just kind of cascading yeah. onto rural communities and we're all breathing it you know i live in a, a really small town we've got two and a half thousand people here small business community is really affected you know we've got people who are isolated and vulnerable in our community who need extra support we've got transport limitations service access limitations and that's the story across rural australia but on the flip side of that and this is i guess the joy of our work at frrr is seeing how local communities are adapting and what they're coming up with to get around some of this and thinking a bit differently. 
So, you know, while we're, our office is physically closed, we're currently looking through about 400 funding applications from across the country. And the story, you know, that kind of emerges is really quite lovely, although heartbreaking in many ways because there's a lot of hardship going on and we're able to see that through all of those funding applications. But it also what that shows us is the amount of creativity, drive, determination, collaboration, you know, there's just this lovely, let's get on and just, yep, this is what we're dealing with now and this is how we're going to pivot and do it differently. You've been at FRR for nearly a decade. What was it that drew you? <laughs> what was it that drew you there? I hadn't thought about it in those terms. <laughs> it's eight, been you've been time. there eight years? I've been at Bachelor for eight years. I've been at Bachelor for nearly a decade. So it's <laughs> Nearly know, a decade, yeah. <laughs> I was in my 30s when I started the Bachelor. You know, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, to be really honest, I had moved to a rural community with my husband and at that time one baby. I was working in Melbourne doing consulting work with small not-for-profit organisations around organisational sustainability. <laughs> Fell pregnant with my second baby. After that second baby, didn't want to commute anymore. My last job involved a lot of travel and it just wasn't feasible as it tends not to be with two kids under two. And so I just really needed to find some local work and, and kept looking around and had known FRRR. So, in fact, the first grant that I ever got when I was a fundraiser was through FRRR when I was in my 20s. So that's kind of a full circle that's been really interesting. So I'd always really liked FRRR and admired their work and, and been connected with them. Um, and a program manager role actually came up. So I applied for it as a job share with another woman who had also just had a baby. Uh, we met on a train when we were pregnant and just kind of connected and threw our hat in the ring as a job share and got it. And then Soph only just left two years ago and I became the CEO four years ago. So it kind of was just one of those, yep, that sort of fits. I've worked in fundraising. I get the grant-seeking part. I've worked with small not-for-profit organisations. I get the challenges they've got. I'm really passionate about rural Australia and it all lined up. And at that time, my, my particular focus was around the 2009 bushfire recovery. So my role was really around that. So that was also, I'd lived not far from those fires when they happened. So I had a pretty direct kind of empathy for that as well. So, you know, it was a bit of an opportunity knocked, alignment of skills, interest, and it's just phenomenal, really. It's, uh, you know, we see the ads that we see in the uh, in the metropolitan areas are always, you know, the RFS people and there's always a koala and a water bottle and stuff like that, um, which is a bit, it's not really what it is, but that's the, you know, that's the story where we're sold. Obviously, the, the bushfires is the most, you know, the most visual and immediate thing that we think about when it comes to issues that face regional Australia. Drought, obviously, another another really visual you know, it's very easy for people who don't live anywhere near it to go look at that. That's dry and nothing's going to grow there. What are some other challenges that you're faced with that, that people in metropolitan areas may not be too aware of? Yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they get the headlines and they get people's heart. And we've struggled with this at FRRR for a long time because those disasters happen on top of existing challenges for rural communities. You know, it exacerbates and plays and probably amplifies some of the challenges that have already been experienced by communities. So for small towns across Australia, one of the biggest threats to them is really population decline. And that might be about age. So you've got older people starting to pass away, not enough young people being or babies being born, and so your population starts to move. Or it's about businesses closing and then people need to move away for work or any other set of circumstances. But what happens 
and it's a slow, slow decline and similar to drought that, you know, it, it happens over such a long time mm. um, and, and it can be so depleting that by the time it gets to a really catastrophic position, it's quite difficult to come back from. And so what can happen is small towns can lose some of their core services, core businesses. If they get to a point where the school closes or there's no preschool, you lose your young families and that is your pipeline of workers. It's your pipeline of small business owners, etc. Your sporting groups are no longer going to be viable. So there's kind of a cascade effect. So the thing we pay attention to is, you know, small towns. How do we actually help them? to kind of be viable, to be on the front foot a bit more. And often that comes in the form of things like tourism initiatives or, you know, all those silo trails that we've seen. It's, you know, communities taking control and saying, we don't have many people, but we've got attractions and we've got assets. And if we build those up, maybe people will come and live here and work here and, and set up businesses. So that, I guess, in terms of the pressure and challenge for rural communities, it's quite invisible and it's so slow that it's almost not noticeable until it's really quite bad. For us at FRRR and for many others, those towns are such a big part of the fabric of Australia. You know, they're part of our identity, they're part of our story and they're part of our, I guess, our, our heart as a country. And so to let them go would be quite devastating, let alone the economic value of them. Yeah, I've got a bit of experience in getting hands-on with regional Australia, more so than just driving through a town on the way from a capital city to another capital city and stopping for lunch. Uh, when we worked with Channel V, we used to we did quite a fair bit of stuff with Ostar, and we we'd spend a day or two in each town as we as we kind of drove around. And um, mm. I was always kind of, you know, I had I grew up in a, in a city. I you know had my preconceptions about what kind of people lived outside of those metropolitan areas probably only fed through a trope in a comedy sketch to be honest mm. and when you know we'd get there and we'd find obviously this is yeah early 2000s so internet well and truly everywhere and satellite tv well and truly everywhere and it was we'd just find kids who were just right into everything that the same kids in the in the cities were into and we find you know young adults in their early mid 20s into the same things that everyone in the city was into and I'd, I'd met a bloke my age who he just went yeah I tried living in Sydney once too big mate didn't like it and, <laughs> and I get that you know Natalie I get that the kind of people that would f feel comfortable living in a city and not comfortable living in a, in a kind of spacious rural tree kind of open area. It's the converse is also true. There's plenty of people who are like, nah, man, too many cars, too many people, too weird. I get that. I really, really get that. And I, and, and look, to be honest, I know enough people that have moved back out. <laughs> they kind of dig it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it's true. It is all perspective and it's relative to your experience. And yeah. I, I know lots of people from rural Australia who would never live in the city. They just don't get why you would. Yeah. You know, why would you when you've got all this around us? Yeah. And that sense of isolation and distance is, I mean, it's really relative. I remember I drove out in Western Queensland by myself a couple of years ago for work. I was going to an amazing women's festival out in the middle of the Channel Country in Queensland. So What's that? The, pretty far away. The Diamantina out there? Yeah, yeah, Diamantina. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, where, that that's where Batuta is. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. So you can imagine that area. I was out by myself. Amazing telecommunications the entire way, full bars yeah. all the way down. But the space was just so huge. Yeah. I felt so alone. I hardly yeah. saw any other cars. But for those people that live out there, that's a daily commute. Yeah. Like, that's nothing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I'm from a regional area that just seems so proximate 
after being there. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. And those people are like, oh, why would I even live in Longreach? <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, Longreach would be the big smoke for people who are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And it, I guess it's also the, you know, the idea that now in this COVID-19 world, I now know the names of, I don't know, if there's 10 houses on my street, I know the names of the people that live in six of them. I can't name you a street that I've ever lived on where I've known that since I was eight, you know. As an adult, you know, kind of into this isolating thing, I'm a grown man, I've got busy things to do, I don't need to know my neighbours. <laughs> and yet, you know, then you start talking about these, you know, these communities where everyone really does know everyone. So, and that leads me to the idea that when some sort of a crisis affects one person in the community, it does have a massive knock-on effect because you are all so close, and particularly, like, yeah. as you're saying, if, if it starts to slowly bleed out those people in that community, the people that stay would feel awfully lonely and like, well, where's my future? Yeah, yep, that's right. And, I mean, mental health is a big underlying issue here and it is in a lot of communities. And as you would know, it's not one that's spoken about easily mm. in a lot of places. And that, that sense of isolation and also responsibility for the future of a place you know, there's a huge sense of responsibility in a lot of towns for, you know, keeping young people well in their communities or providing them with opportunities that will help them to either come back after they've gone and done their other life adventures. But yeah, I think the loneliness and the pressure can be pretty significant on people. And and often the people that are keeping the things going in rural towns are volunteers and they're, they're really doing it in their own time and they're trying to bring everyone along with them. Yeah. That's hard. But knowing people is, I mean, that's one of the best things about rural communities and it's what is shone so brightly when there is a crisis or a disaster and we see that in all of the mainstream media. It's, it's really about that connection yeah. and people really looking after each other and because they know enough and there's enough of a network, you tend to, there's not many people left behind. I was fortunate to go on a, um, I mean, I, I live in a, a safe neighbourhood in, in Sydney and my eyes were stinging across the summer as the smoke blanketed our city from the the absolute cataclysmic bushfires that were happening right across the eastern seaboard. It was horrifying to, to witness from here. I can't imagine what it was like in the country. And I, I did a ride up to... Um, I did a charity thing uh, with some motorbikes. We went up to the, the Putty Road and I, I kind of ta- was talking to some of the RFS guys and... I don't know, you know, we see RFS people, we see them, like I said, on those kind of insurance ads or bank ads, and it's a, it's a it's usually a bloke, he's in a yellow thing and he's got a tired koala asleep on him or something and, like, that's the, you know, that's that. Or we see an angry man yelling out of a window at, at a TV camera, <laughs> which was justifiable in my opinion. And I was talking to these guys and... In a metropolitan area, I wouldn't expect that someone who has a full-time job trying to keep his life together, trying to keep his business running, I wouldn't expect him to take 10 weeks off to save my house. But this is what we're asking people in regional Australia to do. And the disparity between what we expect of our regional versus what we expect of our metropolitan things is that's quite a chasm in our country. And when you think about the responsibility upon those communities to like, oh, well, you're self-sufficient. You can look after yourselves. As we get these, as climate change really is kicking up a gear and we're starting to get these bigger and bigger and bigger fires, do you see a time when there's more professional firefighters looking after these communities? Yeah, it has been a really stark part of this last fire season that 
is very different, I think, to previous fire seasons or anything that anyone's experienced. And if you live in a rural town, generally you'll sign up in one way or another to your local fire brigade or your SES or something. You volunteer in some capacity for something. But the expectation is would never be that you you give up that kind of time. You know, in your signing up, you'd never think that you were going to give up 10 weeks of your time. I think, you know, the policy settings are very much, you know, there's language about community-led practice, self-reliance, that kind of thing. And I, I think a lot of the work that FRRR does is about strengthening local community agency over what's happening in their local environment, over how prepared they are, what they know about their local environment and, and local asset base, so who's got generators, who's got water tanks, who's got access to trucks and whatever else. So I don't think it's necessarily just a question of will we have more paid firefighters. I think it's a question of how do we actually adapt to what is a very different environment. We know climate change is causing increased severe disasters. We've got drought followed by fire and then followed by flood. Back to back, no break. Mm. And then a pandemic. So this is what we're dealing with. And we've known this for a long time. There's plenty of evidence. There's plenty of information. But I think, yes, having more paid resources is definitely part of what we need to think about because we can't expect local people to sacrifice that much for nothing. But at the same time, I actually think that what will help us a lot is having more agency and control in our communities and in ourselves and having the ability to actually shape what our own resilience looks like. Because at the end of the day, it's only ourselves that are going to be there. Yeah. You might have the big big end of town, you know, the choppers and everything coming in, which we definitely need, but it's the local residents in the end who are the ones dealing with it. For me, I don't, I, and I appreciate the diplomas of your answer, but I, <laughs> I, because it really struck me when I was out doing that gig in Robinvale, yeah. which was great. You know, these are, and it was, oh, it was great. There was about 250 people there or something. And these are people that, people in my local Coles, my local Woolies rely on to get out of bed before dawn every day and go to work so that when, when we roll into the supermarkets, there's shelves full of anything we probably want, right? Mm. And when you look at what we're asking them, how we're asking them to live their lives and the risks that we're asking them to live with as far as water security, food security, job security, mm. that you're going to have to rely on a volunteer to hope for your house doesn't burn down. It doesn't seem like a fair deal to me, <laughs> but that's just that's what really struck me. Natalie, that's yeah, what, what really yeah. struck me. And as we move forward, surely as a part of securing our food supply, these things are all a part of that. How can we expect to be sure that Australia has a you know food security and water security if the people that we rely on for those things are constantly putting their lives at risk? Surely that's got to be part of the planning for the next, well, for the future. I was going to say next 20 years, but goodness knows, for the yeah, future. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, the expectation in what we now know the environment to be is too great. It it can't simply rely on volunteers and it can't simply rely on the fire service in itself either. It's it's a much broader issue than that. And it comes down to, you know, a whole range of really complex localised and regional planning processes and they can get really tangled up in policy settings, in regulation. You know, it can actually be preventative. And again, I I mean, I appreciate you think I'm being diplomatic, but (laughs) I do think that there is a really big role for local communities. And I I, I include in that local government, the local business sectors, you know, local residents, emergency services. So we're running a program at the moment called Disaster Resilient Future Ready. And it is about how you enable local people in communities 
to own their local disaster preparedness plans? How do they actually, how do residents connect with the emergency system? How do they actually understand what's going to happen if something does come through their town? Mm -hmm. What's their role? What's their responsibility? What skills and assets do they have in their town that they can mobilise really quickly before, during, after, et cetera, et cetera? And I think what we're learning from that is that the emergency management system has a really important part in a broader system. Its part is about safety and protection. And so you're right, we can't expect that to be unpaid entirely. We need to actually have some recognition of both the skills, capability and the time that's required for that. But we also need to have a more holistic approach that incorporates all of the capability of a place as well. And as far as local government's concerned, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that. Like, there's nothing that somebody sitting there on Macquarie Street in Sydney, yeah. where the parliament is, and what that person might know about how to enact something in Broken Hill is probably based upon an A4 sheet of paper they've got printed on the table in front of them, right? Yet the local government in Broken Hill was like, mate, give me $112,000, I'll fix it by next week. You know, <laughs> they know exactly yeah. Yeah. what to do. And this is why I firmly believe local government is where, where big change mm. really really, really rubber meets the road change actually actually can happen. And the support of those local governments and those those interconnected webs of relationships that have grown mm-hmm. up together in many cases, we were discussing before, these small communities where everybody knows everyone and, you know, why have one particular plan for an entire state where this town is in this massive valley with these two bridge lines covered in wood and this city over there is completely different. Like, why, why would the same solution work for both of those places? And you're absolutely right. It does have to be these local communities managing and having agency in their own yeah. space. When you talk about future ready, what kind of things are you talking about there? So in that project, we've supported a few. So it's involved us, FRRR, providing some facilitation support, I guess, helping to bring people together who might not ordinarily sit around the table and supporting them to come up with some initiatives that might help to, I guess, develop an inclusive process for people to understand their local disaster risk. So one of them involved, and is actually still in action, the school leading the project and school kids actually going around to the neighbourhood and talking, actually door knocking and having conversations with local residents about what they understood about their emergency and flood risk for that place, although they were affected by fires over summer as well. So really it was kind of an intergenerational project and a leadership program all in one, and that's very much still underway. So outcomes will you know, hopefully just continue to happen, but fostering those conversations and connections. And often, you know, young people and older people in communities can have some issues around perception and some misunderstanding and especially young people who are less engaged. So it's a really nice project that's kind of, just putting young people in the driver's seat. There's another project which is about developing a local cultural trail in a town called Weewall in New South Wales. I'm not sure if you know them. Extremely severely affected by drought, but their biggest risk is actually flood. So that was, you know, really about working with that community to identify when the rain comes and when it comes big time and you have lots of rain, what does this place know? How do we actually understand how the land will be affected, um, mm. what the agricultural impact will be, et cetera, et cetera. So the local Aboriginal corporation is leading an initiative there to it's essentially educating about the local land and the way water works and bringing in traditional knowledge about the waterways and creating different pathways and using it as an economic development piece as well so it will bring money in through tourism. So that's a couple of examples. There's yeah. been a, a lot of others that are really about you know, ultimately it's about empowering people with knowledge and information and letting them find the ways to disseminate it that mean the most. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I keep asking this because it's only the only perception I have is the one from the, I literally live like less than three kilometers from the ocean. So I'm literally on the edge looking back towards the middle of Australia is that there is a vast divide between the indigenous community and people who have like, let's say developed the land or people who, you know, their last name is the same last name that that is the name main street is named after, you know, um, Will Anderson famously grew up on the street. Does Anderson? Road, you know, because <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it's, 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 it's the same farm. You know, it's like that's the kind of people we're talking about. The perception is there's a great divide between the, the local indigenous communities in, in some of these areas. As you mentioned, there's people working with each other quite closely. What's the reality, or what's something you're trying to work towards to foster more of? It's mm, a great question. Look, I would say it's different everywhere. No. Firstly, there's there's not one story. There's thousands of stories. Of course. Yes, there are. In some places, there's a tale of two cities, I would say. You can be in one in a regional community or a rural town and there can appear to be a really high level of prosperity and social capital and well-being. But if you scratch the surface, there can also be an extreme level of poverty, disadvantage, disenfranchised people and trauma, deep trauma, because these lands have been stolen a long time ago. And that takes a lot of courage to go through a healing process. And it's not always easy to broker. And it takes a great deal of leadership and courage. So I think there are some absolutely amazing examples. The one I just described in Wee War is really terrific. You know, that's a significant cotton growing area, you know, had years of extreme prosperity followed by extreme hardship. Yet, you know, for us to be able to support the local Aboriginal corporation to lead that process shows a huge amount of collaboration and trust and and belief in traditional knowledge. There are some brilliant examples out there that we're not necessarily directly involved with, but some collective impact initiatives. You might be familiar with the Burke Marangooka Just Reinvest initiative. So that's, it's very much a a community-led 
very long-term initiative led by local Aboriginal people to essentially stop their kids going to jail. So the story in Burke is pretty devastating if you just to look at the numbers, if you to look at the stats on kids being mm. imprisoned and the recidivism rates. And so through, you know, a really long-term process of a lot of community conversation, a lot of developing leadership and a lot of trust and a lot of investment from philanthropy, they've developed what is now known to be one of the best practice collective impact initiatives going around. And they, they undertook an impact study probably 18 months ago or two years ago. And they were able to demonstrate to the government that there were cost savings in terms of the cost to government of imprisoning children by diverting revenue into this kind of initiative. So, you know, young people are not going to jail. They're getting jobs. They're staying in school. You know, it's obviously not all glowing, but the trajectory is different. Mm. And that has taken a huge amount of courage and a huge amount of respectful facilitation over time Mm. and allowing those Aboriginal leaders to step up and and know what's best for their people. Um, so that's one example. Yeah, beautiful. You no, know, and that's magnificent to hear because, I'm, I'm uh, you know, as we described earlier, I'm guessing that something that does, does affect a family in the community that will a- affect the whole community. I mean, nobody wants, we might think that because that family three streets across has a domestic violence problem, it's not my problem. Well, no, their kid goes to school with my kid and, you know, yeah. that will affect ultimately that energy will find its way back into my home somehow. So finding a way to help those families ultimately does help everyone, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, there are, you know, there's a lot of entrenched stigma that also occurs. And this is the downside sometimes of rural communities. You know, the upside is you've got people who really know each other and you you can tend to make things happen quite easily. The downside is that stigma can exist. Mm. And, you know, there are places where particular families are looked down upon or not included in particular things. And there's always history behind everything that's impossible to know unless you've been there and, Mm. you know, it's only one story or one story of 50 potentially anyway. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, who knows the truth in any of these things. But, You know, I think ultimately the towns that are really thriving and starting to address their wellness and prosperity are the ones that recognise that kind of dynamic that, Mm. yes, if such and such is not going well, that is actually going to affect all of us. We have to actually bring everyone together. And some of the work that I think you have participated in probably showed some of that. Yeah, that look, my experience in Robinvale was profoundly moving and I'm I'm so grateful I did get the opportunity to go out there and I think I, I... hanging out and talking to people. I think I did that for like twice the length of whatever it was I was on stage for. And I was, yeah. on, I was on stage for an hour. So <laughs> I talked to people for ages afterwards. It was great. And honestly, I haven't done my groceries the same since because yeah. uh, I, I'm getting teary thinking about this. Um, you know, the, the grapes that we eat, the carrots that we eat, the almonds that we eat, they all come from that area. Mm. And what, the stories I was hearing that people were dealing with, um, like I said to you earlier, you know, I'm expecting that these people get up every single day and do their job so I can put carrots in my salad. And the idea that I am separated from them because of the dollar ninety-five that I've thrown over at the when I tap my card, and therefore now these carrots are mine, and it doesn't know because the moment those carrots aren't there, then that's a problem. <laughs> You know, and now yeah. I'm now I'm directly connected to them. Yeah, well, they get a bit expensive. Precisely, precisely, mm. and that's we're so separated from 
I mean, because ultimately food is free, right? But it's how the people that we rely on with the expertise and the knowledge to make that food and grow that food and harvest that food and if it's animals, rear that food and care for that food. And then, you know, the, the transactional, this thing that we have when we tap our card just instantly cuts us off from that because nope, now it's mine. But in these times when we're suddenly, for the first time in many people's lives, we're seeing empty shelves. Yeah. We're suddenly intimately connected. And um, we can't forget that. We really, really, really can't. I did want to ask, because at that when I was out there, there was a lot of talk about water management. You know, it's very difficult to tell what's actually going on because the Murray is a very, very, very long river. <laughs> and uh, what would you like, you know, the people of Australia to know about water management or what would be your, your dream for <laughs> how we might deal with water management in this country? Uh, it's probably one of the most difficult policy areas you could ever imagine yeah. <laughs> in a country like Australia. Um, look, I think the, the big complexity in our water management is, one, we don't have enough of it in terms of the scale of the continent and the productivity that we seek to have. We've got reliance on water for our environment, obviously, and healthy environments underpin everything. If the environment and the river's not healthy, then nothing will be healthy. Yet we are... A nation that participates in a global economy and our, product, our agricultural productivity is linked with Australia's economic prosperity and therefore to the extent that it's supposed to be for the benefit of all. And so we have quite an existential crisis. You know, we have ultimately the service of the common good and the greater good and the service of Australia's ability to be economically competitive and to provide jobs and to provide a supply chain that can actually offer prosperity. But at the same time, we have an issue around volume ownership. I do have a bit of an issue with water ownership as a concept. Let's pretend I don't know anything about water ownership, which I don't. Uh, <laughs> like, tell me about that. Like, it isn't like, oh, the river flows, I'll take water out of the river and grow my crops. That's the, the fairy tale story, but I'm guessing that's not how it works. I'm not an expert by any means, and I do not know the ins and outs of how water management and water ownership works. But as something that is a basic human right and that is fundamental to life, I have concerns about it being a commodity. So the commodification of water is what I'm meaning. And it, mm. as a result of it being commodified, we have a lot of complexity. We've created a market for something that we actually need to live. And so I don't have the answers, but I, for me, part of the problem starts there mm -hmm. because we've marketised something that is actually a common good, is a common asset. The fact that we've commoditised water is presenting challenges. Uh, yeah, <laughs> challenges. Because, well, in, in fact, inherent conflict. Yeah, which we're lucky that in this country the rivers don't cross national borders, whereas in other countries where they do, yeah, true, yeah, you know, things are kicking off and have done in the past, and um, yeah, yeah, it's a big, big, big deal. It looked like in the news there was a fair bit of fandangleery and under the table, you know, fiddlery and, and weird meetings in car parks as to who got more and whatever. And yeah, bit, pretty messy, you would say. Yeah, yeah. it became pretty yeah. such Not pretty the quick. Most transparent, yeah, process in the world. You know, there's review upon review. Of the plan, you could talk to 10 different communities and you'd probably get a yeah. different view on what should be done. And that's part of the challenge, I think. Can you help me understand as, you know, I'm, I like to think I'm a pragmatic guy. I like to understand that, you know, my, you know, I like 
to wear clothes. I understand that clothes need cotton. Cotton's a very thirsty plant. Is Australia the right place to grow it? Like, when do you think we'll have to start having a conversation about are we growing the right things? Are we growing in the right places? You know, do you have to have those conversations with landowners? Do you have to talk to them about, look, I know your family's been doing this for 100 years, but, you know, weather's not the same now. Are those the conversations you kind of have to have with people? Look, those conversations are happening quite extensively across agriculture. I mean, we're FRRR's not, this isn't really the, you know, we're not in industry. But what I observe is that there's a significant interest in agriculture and horticulture towards efficiency, better Mm. using technology, better using all of the resources available for production. And the National Farmers Federation and all of its members have agreed to a net zero target by 2050, I think it is. Wow. Yeah, so there's there's innovation and there's huge amount of progress. It does not get enough press. Because agriculture is a challenge to get to that. You've got to go, you've kind of got to go negative. Yeah, there's got to be a wild surplus to make it work out. That's fantastic. That's huge. Yeah. How did I not know so, that? So those stories don't hit the headlines, <laughs> yeah. and there's a lot of them. Yeah. And cotton's no different. There's a huge amount of work going on in the cotton industry. Mm. It gets a bad rap, um, and sure, it is thirsty, all of that, but, you know, there's a lot of advancement being made, yeah. and I can't speak for them all, but I would encourage you to, you know, have a chat potentially to some of them oh, yeah. and learn about the innovation because there's a huge amount going on. The NFF, uh, you know, it's a bold target, but you've got to start with a bold target and they've gotten their membership on board with it That's... Um, and they're working towards it. So, you know, it's exciting. There's huge potential. This is the disconnect and this is what I certainly got. There's no doubting of the science of climate change in a rural community. There's no yeah. doubting of the science of, you know, this is getting drier when it comes yeah. to farmers and agriculture. They are like, okay, this is it. It's very much, I understand this is happening. I am changing what I'm doing. But there's such a such a disconnect when it comes to actual federal government policy. And I don't understand. What do you, where do you think that, that this connect is? Oh, um, I'm asking you lots of tough questions today. You are. You're asking very big questions. Um, There's a difference between the policy level Mm. and the delivery. Mm. What we see working with government at FRRR is that actually within a lot of government in the bureaucratic level, there's a lot of really solid knowledge and a lot of good intent and a lot of good practice and a lot of experience of wisdom. And people who are on the ground and who um, are engaging with the right people and understanding the best mechanisms to support initiatives. I think the issue ends up being that we've got a politicised environment, that climate is a political issue. And therefore, the policy settings, they can lack a bit of courage and a lot of a, a bit of vision sometimes. Not to say that there aren't people trying and working hard, but there's so much at stake almost. Oh, yeah. And, you know, my view is we should, <laughs> you know, we should go for it and really listen to people and I guess let government get out of the way, but put you know, pull the right levers and allow the right investments to happen in innovation areas, particularly around agriculture, in community leadership and the ability for local regions to take control. In a fantasy world that I have, it's the Australian 
innovations around around water use and farming that then become an internationally exported engineering product. And, you know, we, we stand to be that country right now. Mm. We have this opportunity at our feet. We have the opportunity to not only lead yeah. the world in renewable energy, but also lead the world in agriculture and drought resistance because we've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but there's going to be countries around the world who are suddenly going to have to figure out how to grow things uh, with a lot less rain. And we do, could you imagine the empowerment in a community? We're like, yep, the reason they can grow stuff in that part of Africa is because of us. Like that is huge, you know, that we have yeah. we have that opportunity now. And it, it is in the, um, as you mentioned, the the thing that FRRR does the best is to keep these communities together and work to keep these communities together and, and giving that kind of empowerment to those communities. Why is it so important? Because look, honestly, if you're living in the cities and you see every summer the same town that you remember the name of burns down again, at some point you go, why do you stay? <laughs> why is it important to protect these communities and to protect what they are and, and, and keep them where they are? Oh, well, firstly, you're not likely to see that happen. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> So burn one year, they're not going to burn the next. They're not going to burn again for a long time, to be honest. So that's one. You okay. know, the regions that have burnt over this summer, very sadly, because there's so much devastation, but there's not going to be any burning there for a very long time. Yeah. So it takes a long time for a place to be vulnerable in that way again. Nonetheless, that's a bit of a caveat. Um, you know, I think that it's connection to place. Yeah. It's heritage, identity. I mean, for our Aboriginal people, that's their country. You wouldn't say to someone in the city, well, your, your street had a, a fire rip through it and all the houses burnt down. Yeah. And then some vandals came in the next year and set it alight again. Those people are not going to say, well, we're not going to live here because it's too dangerous. Yeah. That's a, probably not a very good um, comparison. But, you know, it's it's really about who you are. And, I mean, there are people who move away after fires or major disasters mm. and, there's a bit of research around about what happens to them and, and one of the things is they feel really dislocated and they lose their sense of identity and it takes them a long time to try and, you know, find themselves again because that sense of cohesion is so important and people who know who you are or you at least feel like you know the story mm. when you're in a place is so important and it's so important for your well-being, for your mental health, for your prospects, you know, being able to access information, knowing where to go to get stuff. Mm. We sort of take that for granted, but that's about place. That's about connection. Mm. And so, yes, rebuilding after somewhere has been affected multiple times might seem counterintuitive, but I guess the other part is the betterment principle. You know, how do we build back better? How do we actually take the opportunity? Because often places they've been built in the 50s or 60s or even earlier. They weren't built for the kind of conditions that we have now. So how do we actually think about it from an engineering perspective or from an architecture perspective or from a planning perspective? What are the ways that we can actually live and rebuild differently so that we're safer, we're more protected, but we can actually have better environments to live in? And that's a huge opportunity for a lot of these communities. And that's where the policy settings probably need a fair bit of work. You know, yeah. How do we actually enable that to happen without too much red tape? Yeah, when it does come to, you know, the overall story of, uh, and I know you mentioned this a little at the start, but I, I like to kind of dig a little deeper into it. You know, the overall story of Australia and the regional communities of Australia, why in a broader sense is it important to protect those towns outside of the, the major metropolitan areas? Well, there's a few levels. One of them is economic, you know. They actually 
I wish I had the figures on hand, but regional Australia is responsible for an enormous level of Australia's GDP. It is our food production bowl. You know, when the fires went through Batlow, that was a massive proportion of the apple supply. It's gone. So that's a, a big hit to fruit supply in that region, and they supplied a huge part of the country. So, you know, we think about the economic contribution of those towns. It is significant and profound and has been for a long time, although the profile is changing. You know, there's there's less manual labour jobs. You know, technology is becoming far more advanced, and so farming operations are different now, but still really interesting opportunities for careers, etc. We've then got, obviously, the natural environment and wellbeing. Who from the city does not ever at least go to the coast or to the bush or to somewhere, going to recharge, catching their breath, going somewhere beautiful? really part of our wellbeing and, and our recreational access as a country, and it's really unique. Not all countries have that, or you have to travel quite far, but we actually have that, and we've got diversity across the country. We've got pretty much everything you could want. You can go to the desert, you can go to the tropics, you can go to the snow, <laughs> you can go to the coast, all within the one continent. So it's pretty remarkable. And so, you know, coming out of COVID, regional communities have got a huge opportunity in terms of regional tourism for those that are able to get out and about, mm. big opportunity. Um, and I know that that's very much front of mind for a lot of them. And then I, I guess there's culture. So many of the stories of our history, both our white history and our Aboriginal history, you know, it's it's about country, it's about land, it's about landscapes, you know, the, the images that are conjured through all of our, you know, our storytelling is so anchored in our rural landscapes and in our rural places. And so many of our great films centred in some of those places, you know, and some of the funniest, mm. funniest stories that there are about Australia are in rural areas one way or another. So aside from, you know, that part of our culture, there's art and there's vibrancy that is, it, it stems from place. If we think about the silo art, you know, they're, they're this beautiful demonstration of local character and local identity and, and the celebration of the specialness of those places. You know, you can go to any town, there's sculpture trails, there's, uh, you know, there's just amazing artistic expression that I don't think we necessarily see in other contexts because it is driven by the unique characteristics and challenges often of those places. Natalie, when you look forward, when you look for the next, you know, like 10, 15, 20 years, you see, what do you see for regional and rural Australia? Do you see growth? Do you see a changing demographic in these towns? Do you see people looking like you can't afford to buy a house in Sydney. I don't care who you are, you know, unless you have my job and there's three of my job <laughs> so, and I've got one of them. There's one on channel yeah. 10, one on channel nine, one on channel seven. That's it. Yeah. There's three people that have this job. All right. And yeah. I appreciate that. But if I didn't have this job, hell no, could I afford to live in this city? I know, I know that. You know, I talked to just another bloke today who moved to the South Coast. He's like, he's a creative bloke is like, no, I'm out of here. And half the people I work with have left the city. They're all, they all live about an hour's drive out of Sydney now. What, what do you see in the next 20 years? How do you see the, the demographic shifting in these areas? Yeah, and you're right, we're already seeing it. So I guess the peri-urban boundaries are stretching or coming closer, I should say, as well. So some of the housing density is shifting and going out into those areas. But for people, particularly younger people with families who have jobs that enable them to not necessarily have to walk into an office building in the city. Which is everybody right now. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I know. This is our time. This is rural Australia's time. It really is. <laughs> I'm certain of it. The opportunities are there if there is really good internet coverage, if you've got decent access to transport amenities, so a train line into the city or a regional airport, 
you know, if you've got decent hospital, et cetera, you know, you're kind of set up to attract those people. And then what we have is sort of an expanding regional centre base. So some of the areas that are kind of smallish now, like Castleman is becoming quite a big regional area. The property prices are getting quite ridiculous and unaffordable for people. But when we moved up here, it was gold. You could get something amazing for only a few hundred thousand dollars. Mm. And it's got a hospital, it's got a train line, it's got every service you could require, close to Bendigo. So it's it's got high amenity. So places that have got high amenity are going to do really well. What I think the, the stats say is there's a, a lot of intra-migration. So whilst people, you know, there's stats about population decline, there's actually a lot of inward migration around and between regional areas. So, again, where, where there are opportunities for hot spots of innovation, you're going to have people gravitate towards. And so, again, you know, there's a lot of reasonably small towns that are not regional centres but not that far away from them that are setting up little innovation hubs mm. and small business incubators and, you know, creative industry sectors that are going to attract those people. So yeah. there's, you know, there's a lot of that happening and I think we will probably see some of those centres become bigger, more robust and more connected. Yeah. So you think about university networks and yeah. um, all of the, the sort of pathways that you can create through having that kind of structure. I think that the challenge, though, is that we will continue to have some of the more small and very remote places will continue to struggle and the service models that exist for them just don't quite work well enough. So telehealth and that kind of thing is brilliant. It gets you so far. So I, I think also, and this is my hope, that we can find ways to adjust service system models that are fit for purpose and fit for size. So not everything needs to be fully serviced or developed, but hopefully there can be models that those smaller communities can have so that there are more localised supports. So Malakuta, for example, yes. in South East Victoria, very small, isolated, nearest centre is actually what's either Bairnsdale or Bega, so pretty far away. Their local medical clinic was at risk of losing their GP and the community rallied to keep the GP and then ran a program called Doctor Search to attract other GPs. So they kind of sold their town. They did a whole campaign to sell their town and get GPs to come. And at the same time, and I might not be getting all of the details quite right, so forgive me whoever's listening, <laughs> the community had been fundraising for a long time for an aged care facility. Again, one of the key things that those small towns really need. But what they they were about to lose the GP clinic and the GP service, so they actually transferred their effort towards retaining the GP clinic. And they've now set up a, an independent not-for-profit charity that's sole responsibility is to make sure that that clinic is funded. So they're actually driving their own service model. It's never going to be funded by government. It's too small. It's not feasible. Yet they're doing it. So they've created their own fund. The local community supports it. FRRR supported it, of course. They're playing a phenomenal role in the bushfire recovery, but totally possible. Communities can do it if they've got the ideas and the right people around the table. What does bushfire recovery look like these days? Like, obviously, this is unprecedented, unexpected. I'm not going to say unexpected. I'm sure you saw it coming. You know, what does bushfire recovery look like? I know we spoke a little bit about building it back better, but what, is it, what does it look like? I know that, for example, in somewhere like Malakuta, people might not yet have even still moved back. So what does the bushfire recovery look like? Are you meaning in the COVID situation or? Oh, more well, gently? okay, yeah. That, I'm fascinated by that. Like, how do you have a community shelter when you can't have more than five people in a room? Yeah, yeah, it's presenting a lot of challenges. Big concerns about reaching people who are isolated and vulnerable. There are people who are not in housing yet. There are people who are in 
temporary accommodation on their own properties but don't want to move. So, um, you know, how do you look after them? Yeah. I mean, the, some places had fires back in October. And for those communities that we've been chatting with, they're still finding that people are struggling to navigate all the recovery support. And what's happened with COVID is it's added additional pressure to the small business sector because getting the businesses back up and running is a really big part of giving a bit of hope that things can get going. And that that sort of Easter tourism boost was going to be a big morale booster for people. And the thing, partly because the fires happened in the peak of the summer tourist season, social and economic wellbeing are absolutely intrinsically connected in rural towns. So get the, the economic side working well, the social side starts to build and people feel like there's a bit of optimism. And it also means that businesses, if businesses are making money, they can support local things and they can start sponsoring the local footy club or they can start to mm. help out with the events or whatever it is. So it sort of feels like it's a bit of a waiting space at the moment. But at the same time, there's a lot of depletion and fatigue and people are really tired. But at the same, it's sort of this strange waiting space where they're ready to go, but they're also really tired. Mm. So... Nonetheless, I mentioned earlier, we're reviewing about 400 funding applications at the moment and a big percentage of those relate to both COVID response and bushfire recovery. And our principle is we're just going to fund it, even if it looks like it might have to be changed in some way to be delivered. So the, the things that we're kind of hearing about are, you know, if it's a food security project, they're kind of adjusting it a bit so that it's a, a food pantry that they can allow, you know, periodic access to and people can come in and they can just modify it a bit, whereas they might have done it a bit differently before. There's one project actually that was about to run an arts event. Um, it wasn't a bushfire recovery project, but it was a drought-related project and they ran a whole arts festival online. So they just changed it all. So they're kind of there's a lot of people going, all right, we still want to do these things, so how do we do it a bit differently in this context just to keep things moving? And then there's a, okay, so how, what do we use this time to do to plan? How do we get ready so that when we're, we're able to do the sort of recovery work, we can get going? And, I mean, we're still hearing from the recovery agency that a lot of the cleanup work is still happening. So there's still environmental cleanup work yeah. happening. There's still housing cleanup work happening. So that hasn't stopped. It's just not very visible. There's no media going into towns anymore. No. You know, we're not seeing it. And I think that's that's probably a big part of what I've heard lately is there's a, a concern that those communities are a bit forgotten. Yeah. And that the public will move on now because we're all concerned with ourselves in COVID and we've all been affected by something really hard. Yeah. And that's that's fair enough. And we heard the same from drought-affected communities when the fires happened. Yeah. They felt that they were going to be forgotten too. Yeah. And that's part of our, I guess, our challenge as a society and as we move through things, things so quickly is that, you know, there are still these things take a long time. Yeah. And so for and that's why I was saying, you know, some communities were affected in September. You know, really the first year is just, okay, what the hell just happened? Mm. How do we actually sort this out? What do we need to do? Who do we need to take care of? And then, you know, years sort of two, three, four about all right, well, what does this look like now? What do we need? What's still left after this sort of immediate recovery and relief mm. effort? What's still left to be done? And that's where a lot of there's a bit of focus on preparedness. Okay, so if this happens again, what didn't we have right that we could get ready for now? And that can be really practical stuff. Okay, we could not communicate with each other. We need better radio communications. We just provided a, a grant to the community radio station in Tumut to upgrade their tower because they were just a critical communication channel. And it might be um, around generators, etc. And then, you know, what we... I also started to hear about, and this will progress, is how to connect with young people because in the early phases they tend to be a little bit pushed to the side. 
not deliberately, but it's, you know, there's just a lot of work going on and it's sort of like, okay, we need to keep our young people over here, we need to keep them safe, we need to protect them and we've got to deal with everything else that's going on here. But that trauma experience is profound for a young person. I mean, you think about anything really, children, mm. babies, and I I think that as that sort of time scale goes on, it's that who do we need to look after, who are we kind of noticing and not coping so well and, and what do we do? And that's where we tend to see some really lovely, beautiful initiatives happening in yeah. communities and, and typically quite creative avenues as well. During the whole summer, and it was directly through my, my experience working with FRR, uh, I know there was a lot of fundraising going on, but I just kept saying like FRRs if you're going to donate donate to these people because like the, the ability that you have clearly to just deliver to boots on the ground people who can take action and meaningful action that is from the community for the community versus some giant overarching benevolent something whoever is everyone means well but as far as yeah. who can actually get it done uh, um, <laughs> when I could see what the FRRR was doing. Um, like that's, for me, you know, I, I'm torn up. I was torn up today thinking about uh, the challenge of, of the climate change that we're, we're facing. And it's people like you, Natalie, and it's organisations like yourself that I look to to be like, well, we need leadership out of here and um, we need to take care of everybody. And I can't take care of the people on the beach in Malakita, but you know somebody that can. So <laughs> um, I'm grateful that you exist and I'm proud to tell people to give to your, your organisation because I, I know that it really is very meaningful work that you do and it's immediate and it is uh, not really tied down. As you mentioned before, you just, we just fund it and then figure it out. Um, <laughs> that kind of attitude, it might be what we need right now, particularly when time is, is such a factor with another summer only months away. It's super important. There are challenging times ahead and the challenging times right now, but I'm grateful that you're here. I really, really am. And everybody that you work with, honestly... Uh, you guys are great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, we've got a pretty lucky job. We feel very, very blessed to do what we do yeah. and to have amazing supporters um, like yourself because it's a, it's a team effort, right? It really is. And for people that would like to support you, what's the best thing that they can do? Bearing in mind, though, they may not be able to support financially right now. How can they support you? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Look, spreading the word is always actually really powerful. So talking about FRRR, but also when we're able and to the extent that people can actually getting out to rural communities, that helps us. It helps communities and it will help them hopefully in their wellbeing as well. So that's a really big one. And just, you know, even getting online and doing online shopping in rural communities is a really great way if people have got any disposable income at all or if they're getting ready for Mother's Day, birthdays, whatever. There's a great website called Buy From The Bush. You can go and check out amazing resources. So, you know, they can support FRRR by supporting communities, firstly. And in terms of FRRR, you know, we've got a whole range of focus areas. It's not only natural disasters that we support communities with. There's a lot of just general capacity support that's needed across rural Australia. And, in fact, the biggest part of work that we do is funding things like community halls and helping local towns to fit out the kitchen so that they can do better events or that kind of thing. And it's really hard to raise money for that stuff. It's just not sexy 
and it does not keep you <laughs> behave life at all, but it actually can have huge impact and very long-lasting results. So, you know, anyone that kind of really believes in rural communities and wants to support FRRR's work, that's always an area that we just can always put to good use. Natalie, I appreciate it so much that you took the time to speak with me this afternoon. Thank you very, very much for your time and uh, and thanks again for doing the great work that you do and I'm, I'm stoked that I'm able to amplify uh, in a little way the work that you're doing at the moment. Thanks so much. It was an absolute pleasure. That was Natalie Eggleton. You can find out more about what they do at the FRRR at frrr.org.au, Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal, f3rs.org.au. She's magnificent. The work they do is magnificent. And clearly, it's probably quite clear to you now how important it is that we robustly defend and protect rural, regional and remote Australia for all of our sakes. It's vital that we do this. We are not just an island of metropolitan cities. We need the inland of our country. We absolutely do for our very survival. And um, these people need our help. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. Take care of yourself um, around if you need me tomorrow night on Twitch. I'll be there about 8 o'clock if you want to come play a quiz with me. It was a lot of fun last week. A lot of dudes, though. A lot of dudes wouldn't mind seeing some ladies on the quiz, so just sign up for a free account on Twitch. If you've got Zoom, that's how you play the quiz. Uh, but everyone's been working on Zoom this year, so you know what that is too. New episode of Dad Pod coming out on Wednesday with Charlie Clawson, episode two. And I'll be back for a Q&A with Twitch on Thursday, and then I'm back here on Friday. Crikey. You get a taste every day if you want it. <laughs> if not, do whatever you got to do. I don't mind. Thank you so much to everyone that helped me make the show today. Rachel Barrett, my uh, executive producer of my life, basically. Andy Ma, my audio producer. Andy Ma, the great and powerful. Uh, Mike Mills, my music producer. And Hayley Van Spania, my social producer. Thank you, everybody, who helped me make the show today. And thank you for listening. I can't do this show without you. If you like the show, if it brought you value, please consider telling somebody about the show. Just let somebody know. Say, hey, I heard this episode today about in regional Australia. It's really interesting. You should check it out. That's it. That'd be the best thing you could ever do for me. Hey, thanks heaps. All right. Look after yourself until I speak to you uh, later this week. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.